Hi there, my name is Brad. Happy to see you. Happy Thanksgiving. How did it all go? Are we full? How are the leftovers? Are there leftovers? No? Bummer. Okay. We have leftovers. That was uh, lunch and dinner and part of breakfast yesterday. It was great. Uh, so uh, we didn't cook turkey. We cooked brisket because that's just what we do. So brisket kind of goes with everything. So brisket and eggs? Sure, why not? Uh, that that worked well. Uh, so a few years ago, my uh, my brother did one of those 23andMe testing things. You ever heard of one of those? Yeah. Uh, so he, he surrendered his DNA to a stranger, which uh, I looked at and went, that just seems, that's weird, man. Uh, so thank you for that. Now strangers have, my, my fear is that I'm going to be framed for a crime uh, that I didn't commit. And so now someone has my DNA or something that looks like my DNA, and here we go. Uh, but he gave the DNA of the Thayer family to a stranger, and they did the research, and they came back with some interesting results. These things have been fascinating for a number of years, and, they, and they've grown more and more popular, uh, probably because we all want to know where we came from. But there were some expected results. Some of the things that we knew, like uh, we are... British, uh, mostly Irish, German. That's where we come from. But then this little part came up that, hey, we have some Spain close to us. Uh, And we went, what? And the problem with this is we don't see the story that comes with it. So we don't know which one of our ancestors came through that peninsula and, and then finally settled up in, in Ireland. We don't know who, we don't know how. We just, they just, it's just a pie graph that says, you're this. And we go, here we are. But to get the story, we had to go to my Uncle Harold. My Uncle Harold died a number of years ago. Uh, he was the family historian. And so before he died, I remember going and seeing him in Deckerville, Michigan, which if you've never been to Deckerville, Michigan, and you're driving through it, don't blink. Uh, there's a stop sign, and that's it. Uh, but it's, it's one of those towns. And so we went and visited him, and he's sitting on his bed, and he starts telling us where we came from. And the stories that he said were awesome. Some of them were great. A couple of them were like, ooh, I don't know if you should be cheering that story. For instance, I'm related to King William. Look out, Uncle Buck, or that, oh no, King Ralph, the movie King Ralph. Uh, King William had a night that he probably wished no one knew about, and here we are. We're related to him. So if anything, I didn't get my invitation to the palace to go to there, but you're amongst royalty, act accordingly. Uh, uh, but is it... No? Okay, never mind. Then he tells us a story about one of our other, uh, his great-great-grandfather was a Pony Express rider. And we're like, oh, that's awesome. And then he goes, yeah, he even uh, hung out with some guy named Jesse James. And I go, ooh, not as awesome. And so he's given us this family tree, and we're like, this is great. And then he tells us the story about one of, some, one of us, us, because it's part of who I am, uh, had to flee Ireland because he got in a fight with a Catholic and needed to get out of the country. And so he came to America, and here we are. See, family trees are like this, right? You can look back, and sometimes there's cool things like King William and the Pony Express, and then they're always coupled with this other thing of he probably, what, what's the anchorman brick? You almost killed a dude. Yes, I know. We need to lay low for a little while. Let's go to America and hide out. We don't know what happened, but he had to leave. And so you have this mixed bag of where you came from and, what you're, and, and who, who you came from. This is the great thing about genealogies. In the Bible, I don't know if you've noticed this when you're reading through, you come to a lot of genealogies. And the habit, if you're like me, is to skip them. 
because they're not very exciting. You don't know any of those names and it'd be more interested if they're attached to you. And so you skip through them. You're like, well, who's, who, and they're, they're listed on the side. You go, I don't, I don't know who Abatha is. I don't, I don't know who that is. Why? And so we skip them. But in the Bible, genealogies were of vast importance. Knowing where you came from for them was critical to their story because it wasn't only their life that they were living, it was their ancestors' life. They were continuing the legacy that was passed down to them. For them, it was tying their lives to what came before them and what came after them. So this is how Matthew begins the Christmas story. We like to think that the Christmas story begins in a manger. Matthew doesn't start it that way. Matthew begins with a genealogy. And if you skip over it, you miss some really cool stories and some troubling stories in there. Matthew ties his life to the beginning of of the covenant that God made with Abraham. In the first line of Matthew 1, he says, this is the story of Matthew, son of Abraham, son of David. And he just goes down the line and says, this is where Jesus came from. So automatically, if you're a Jewish person at this time, you see this genealogy and go, this is important. He puts Jesus in the same line as Abraham, David, and Solomon, the, the important people in, in the genealogy. Matthew's doing something here, if you want to get into it. He's proving that Jesus was the rightful king of the Jews. And so he puts, the, puts him in the kingly line. He's also proving that he was 100% Jewish. To have your name listed in this genealogy was a big deal. It meant that you were known. It meant that you were somebody. It meant that you were important. When we read the genealogies in Matthew, it's important to know that it's not complete. There are missing names in these genealogies. That's why if you, if you ever hear someone saying, well, I searched through the genealogies and then added up however many years everyone lived, and that's how old the earth is, that's not a wise thing to do. Uh, you're going to miss out on a lot of things. Or if they try and date things specifically based on genealogies, you're going to be short because these genealogies aren't exactly 100% accurate. There's missing names. And so Matthew writes these genealogies of where Jesus came from, and he's listing these names, and he's putting people in there that they'd recognize. He's putting the important things in there. There's some missing parts to it, but what Matthew's doing is building a, a processional of like a, like a drum roll, please. I'm getting to the point of all of this. And he's going, and then there was this name. And you could see it, to use another metaphor, it's like a crescendo that's building to the very last verse of who Jesus is. But before you get to the loud cymbal crash, you have to go through some of these names. And some of these names you're expecting to see. Abraham, of course. Judah, Jacob, of course, Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the forefathers, yes. We, those are the forefathers of the faith. Those are the ones that we want to see. David, yes. Solomon, absolutely. You can go through and go, yeah, that, that person makes sense. But then there's some names as, as the processional goes by, and, and you see some names that don't, don't fit. Well, that person's not supposed to be here. Or you look at this and go, that person was that person was a problem. They're, some of the kings that David, David, or that came after David, weren't great. What are they doing in here? Why are they in our, 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 Why are they in this processional? This is supposed to lead to Jesus. It's supposed to be all celebrated. But they have criminals. They have people that in the, in the book of Kings did not worship God, and were called evil. And they're in the line of Christ. And then you keep reading and then you come to, four, to five names that really should not belong in the genealogy. Genealogies in this day only included men. And there's five women listed. 
And so they're going by in this procession, and you're like, wait a minute. She's not, she doesn't belong here. And then she goes by, and there's another one. So Tamar walks by, and you're like, wait, no, that's not supposed to happen. And then Ruth walks by, and you're like, wait, no. And then Bathsheba comes by, you're like, wait, this isn't, this doesn't make any sense. And then Mary, and then you're like, this, this shouldn't be happening. It doesn't fit with the family tree. These are the messy parts, the, the, the kings that did evil, the women who weren't supposed to be in this genealogy or mention this genealogy. But Matthew's saying something here that we should all pay attention to. Every part of this family tree is important. Even the parts that we're not accustomed to seeing, even the parts that we'd rather stay hidden. Jehoshaphat, come on, do we have to mention him? Those parts are important. Those parts, even the non-significant parts, play a valid role in the story that God is writing to bring to us Jesus. All of it is useful. The shocking parts, all of it is in Jesus' line. And Matthew gives us all of these names. He's not afraid to do so. And the women that he mentions, three of them aren't even Jewish. So why are they in the line? Yet they're there. Tamar was from, uh, the, Judah had to go find Tamar to be married. Uh, Bathsheba married a Hittite. Uh, Rahab lived in Jericho. Those three aren't Jewish. Why are they in this line? We don't know, but Matthew is telling us everyone belongs in the family of Christ. doesn't matter where you've came from. doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what kind of reputation you have. Everyone belongs in this family. Even the ones that cause pause belong in the family. Over the next five weeks, we're going to be examining five of these names. All of them, the women in, in, in Matthew's genealogy. And each one of these women who don't belong in this, and culturally don't belong in this uh, genealogy, each one of them begins to start a ripple of faith that builds and builds and builds into this giant tsunami of a wave that ends up crashing at the manger of Christ that says every single one of us belongs here. We belong in this family. They're each a part of Jesus's family. And our invitation is to be a part of this family too. So this week we're going to be on Tamar. And it's not your hallmark Christmas story. For those of you who have read Genesis 38 and know a little bit about the story of Tamar, it's a rough story. Uh, you can read all through its nice details uh, on your own. We're not going to get too far into it, but we'll, we'll breeze over it and, and see some of the, the high points. But it start, Matthew begins this genealogy, and she's one of the eight names first mentioned. Matthew 1 says this, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac, the father of Jacob, which is, this is usually how far I get in genealogies, but let's press through. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, there were 11 others, Judah, the father of Peretz and Zerah, who was the mother of, who, of Tamar, whose mother was Tamar, Peretz, the father of Haran, Haran, the father of Ram. And right there, Tamar, we breeze over it. Tamar, the mother of Peretz. Tamar's story, like I said, not an easy one, not the normal Christmas story that we're used to telling at this time. It's not the nice, warm colors that we see. Tamar was a victim. 
She lived in a world that was not kind to women. She lived back way long ago. The dates on her are sketchy when she did live. But she was living in a time when women were treated like property. They were controlled, they were used, and then they were discarded. Some cattle had better rights than some women in that that time period. Women weren't allowed to be educated, they couldn't work, and if they weren't married, they were forced into a life of witchcraft or prostitution. In the ancient world, to be a woman without a father or a husband or without a son is to be on their own, and there's not many jobs in that culture that could sustain you. So in Genesis 38, we've, uh, if you want to turn back there, Genesis 38, where we meet Tamar, uh, she's, uh, she's found as a wife for uh, Judah's son, or Jacob's son, Judah. I have a son named Judah, so it's going to be a little weird. I might confuse names here a little bit, but whatever. Uh, but Judah, Judah's story comes from, he's the son of, uh, son of Jacob, and when he was born, his mother said, I'm going to stop trying to please my husband. I'm going to, to give thanks to the Lord. And so she said, therefore, I'm going to name my son Judah, which means song of praise. Judah's mom had better faith than Judah ended up having. But Judah goes out in Genesis 38. He finds a wife for his son. And so on that day, it was like going to the market. He went, he picked one out, he paid the dowry. He now owns Tamar, and he gave Tamar to his son to be married. Now, in those days also, when the husband were to die, if they were to have, this is all going to make sense later, okay, if I even get through it. They were going, if, if you were married and your husband were to die and you were the woman, you're in trouble, unless there's an older brother or a next brother that can come and marry you. And this, is, was, this was called the Leverite Law. It was, this was how that they protected women. This is the best they could have thought of back then. And so it was this. So if, if you're married and the oldest brother dies, your husband dies, the youngest brother comes, and he, t- he takes you as his wife and hopefully gives you a son. Now the catch was this. That son is raised not as that brother's son, but as the dead brother's son. This happens to Tamar. She, her husband dies. The next son comes up. His name is Er. And he comes, our Onan. And Onan says, yeah, I'll marry her because this is what I'm supposed to do according to Leverite law. This is the law that they have. This is what I'm supposed to have. I'll, I'll marry her. But Onan had a problem. Onan did not want to give her a child because Onan, that would mean that all the birthright, all the money that would come from Judah would go to this child who's technically not his according to the law. And so Onan didn't want her to conceive. And so Onan did some things in order to make sure that didn't happen. And if you really want to read more about it, it's pretty graphic. It's in Genesis 38. You can have that in your quiet time. I don't really want to talk. This is a family-friendly service. So we're not going to get into that. But this, so he, he committed what was known as the sin of Onan. Because of this, he did something that was evil. And He was killed. So now Tamar was married to one son who died, who was called wicked. And now there's the other son who was also called wicked. And now he's dead. And so Tamar is 0 for 2. She's in trouble, which meant that the next brother would have to marry Tamar. If you're Shelah, who's the next brother, would you be a little scared to marry Tamar? Right? She's like the black widow, so to speak. She's the one, all of her husbands have passed. She's the one, I I don't know if I want to marry her. And then if you were the father-in-law and sons are your most valued possession, would you be in a hurry to give your son to Tamar? No, 
Even though this is what Judah was supposed to do, he was duty-bound, and this was uh, ethically what he was supposed to do, he didn't want to do it. And so he made up an excuse. In Genesis 38, he says, why don't you keep your widow's clothing on, so stay in mourning, don't move on past this. It'll be like Mrs. Haversham, that just everything stops at the death of your husband, both of them, and we're just going to put you on hold until my next son is old enough to get married. The problem is this, he had no intention of giving his next son to Tamar. Judah is not a nice guy. And so Shelah gets older and Tamar is still waiting for someone to do right by her, to take care of her. Judah sends her back to her father's home and she's there waiting. She's been struck twice. She has a stigma around her. She, she's been rejected. She's been used. Onan used her for his own pleasure, never really wanting to take care of her. Both of her husbands died, and now her father-in-law, who's supposed to take care of her, says, why don't you just live where you are and never again come out of that place? Tamar is a victim of society and a broken family. Judah wasn't fulfilling his, out, filling his own role. He was looking out for himself. There's a section within the Leverite law that says if a son is unwilling to or unable to marry this woman, the father-in-law must. And Judah did not do so. Now this is before Leviticus. This is before the Levitical law. This was the law of that day in Canaan. Judah was supposed to take care of her. And he did not. And so the story continues. In verse 12 of Genesis 38, after a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, she doesn't have a name, she's just known as Shua's daughter, died. When Judah recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah, to the men who were shearing sheep, and his friend Hurrah, the Adalumite, went with him. Now here's the deal. Tamar was supposed to stay in mourning. She has to stay stuck. Judah is allowed to move on. Is that fair? No. Judah's wife dies, and he's allowed to have a life. Tamar's husbands die, and Judah says, why don't you stay there? You stay put. So when Tamar was told this, your father-in-law is on the way to Timnah to shear his sheep. This was something that happened every year. Judah was a big deal. He had a lot of sheep. He was probably very prominent, very wealthy. He takes his sheep to get uh, sheared. This is where they get their money for the, for the year, their food and everything. So he's going to here to get this. And when, when he went there, your father-in-law is on the way to Timnah to shear the sheep. She took off her widow's clothes. She covered herself in a veil to disguise herself and sat down at the entrance of Enaim, which is the road to Timnah. For she saw that though Shelah had, not, had now grown up, she was not going to be given to him as his wife. Now this is what took place in that day. Prostitution was common, especially during the harvest season. It, it was when they would travel and they'd be lonely. And so the men would pick up a prostitute. This was acceptable, so to speak, in that time. Judah was on his way there. And he comes to this part of the journey where the prostitutes were, which in many ways tells us what kind of man Judah is at this time. He intentionally goes this way where the prostitutes are. And this is normal for him. He picks up what he thought was a prostitute. 
And so Tamar, knowing that this is what Judah is like, dresses herself up as a prostitute to fool her father-in-law. She disguises herself. So she knows that this is the practice that Judah goes through. This was normal. Yep, he usually goes this way. He stops there. He picks up a hooker. I'm going to go and I'm going to disguise myself and he's going to pick me up. Verse 15, when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute for she covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me, she asked. Now, she's brokering a deal. Tamar's pretty sharp. So she brokers a deal, and the negotiations seem to make sense for Judah. And he goes, I'll send you a goat from my flock, he said. And then she comes back, will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. Now, a goat from her, his flock would have been a pretty high price, dollar right there. A goat would provide for her. Even today, someplace, some organizations say, buy a goat for this village in whatever country because the goat gives milk, the goat can give meat, and the goat can reproduce. This is a big deal. She's going to be taken care of. Already, Judah is showing a prostitute more respect than he did for his daughter-in-law. And so the kid goat being expensive, and she agrees to it, and she goes, now, I agree to that. Now, what are you going to put down as a deposit? He said, this is what I, this is what I, what I want. I want your seal and, the, and, and its cord and the staff in your hand. The cord, staff, and seal will be like if, if you were to go uh, rent something at the zoo, you have to give them your license. This is proving your identity. No one else should have that. So it's like handing them your wallet. Judah says, yes. You have a deal. I'm going to give you all the identification markers that I have for the day. No one else owns these but me. So you hold on to these, and when I send the kid goat to you, you'll give them back. And Tamar is brilliant for asking for these. Judah, a very wealthy man, would have his reputation tarnished by skipping out on a payment. So she answered, and he gave, he gave them to her, and then he slept with her. And then she became pregnant by him. Now remember... This is the story of Jesus. This is all in the line of Christ. These are the stories we tend to miss. It's not your usual Christmas story. So a few days later, Judah sends the payment. He says to his servant, go back to that place where we picked up, you know the place, and take this goat and give it to this woman as payment and then get my identification markers out. So his servant comes back and says, Judah, I didn't find her. She wasn't there. Besides, the men who lived there said there hasn't been a shrine prostitute here ever. Then Judah said, okay, let her keep what she has. Or, now watch this, or we will be a laughing stock. After all, I did send her this young goat and she wasn't there to collect. Now, what is Judah concerned about? Image. We're going to be a laughing stock. He cares more about himself. What will they think? Hey, you can testify on my behalf that we at least tried. Now, Tamar has been victimized. She's been tossed away because she makes Judah look bad. Two of his sons are killed. She hasn't given forth an heir yet. There's no son to take on the name. She's not worth anything to him. And so he's, he, he's, he's more worried about his image. Judah is a broken person. And so after about three months go by, and Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution. 
And so right now she's pregnant and three months go by. She's probably starting to show a little bit and everyone can figure out what's happened. She's not married, so therefore she must be a prostitute. Judah hears this and as a result, she's pregnant and Judah says, bring her out and have her burned to death. So, so let's get this straight. I know this is really painting Judah in a bad light, but it comes later. So let's get this straight. Judah is allowed to spend the night with the prostitute with no problems. But Tamar is going to be killed for prostitution. Is there a double standard here? Absolutely. Tamar has been taken advantage of now twice by her father-in-law. Yet she's considered the one to be punished. So Judah thinks Tamar's the broken one, but in reality, he's the broken one. He's the one not fulfilling what he's supposed to do in his duty. It makes no sense, but she's trapped, about to be killed because of somebody else's mistake. I don't know your, all of your stories, but I'm safe to say that we have been victims of other people's mistakes at some point in our life. So maybe you can identify with Tamar a little bit. Something happened to you along the way. Somebody did something. And you were the one who was punished. And you're left holding what's left of your life to say, I have no justice. I can't do anything. We have to remain silent. I've been there. Tamar shares the story with every single one of us. We've been victimized. We've been taken advantage of. We've been sinned against. We're held accountable for somebody else's mistake. And it seems like everybody else gets off scot-free. So verse 25, as she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I'm pregnant by the man who owns these. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Mic drop, right? It's like they didn't have Maury Polvich back then to, to take the father test. But this is as good as it gets. This is you are the father. Or if it's Star Wars or Star Trek, one of the two, Luke, I am your father. This is, this is it. I don't know which one it is. But this is him, her, putting him in the hot seat. You're the guy who did this. In some ways, it reminds me of that story in John where this woman is brought out because she's committed adultery and she's brought out all by herself and all the, the, the rulers and the Pharisees come out and they gather around her and they're, they're ready to stone her and she's the only one who's brought out. The other, it takes two to commit adultery in that day and so it takes two and so they come out and where's the guy? He's nowhere to be seen so she's being used as a plot to, you know, to get Jesus in a trap but what's Jesus say? throw the first stone and all the stones begin to fall. This is similar to what's happened here. She calls his bluff. Uh, and she says, this, you're the person who the, who's the father. And then Judah says in verse 26, she recognized him. And she says, she is more righteous than I, since I would not give her my son Shelah. And, she did not, and he did not sleep with her again. So there's a transformation that takes place here with Judah. And oftentimes we read this story and we like to focus on the story of Judah because it's, it's Judah. And we're like, yeah, he's great. And there, there is a transformation that takes place here. Judah goes from being a self-centered, if I can say jerk, scoundrel, and something breaks in him right here. And it would break in you too if you were in his shoes. He has just been shown that he's not as good as he thinks he is. And this woman that he's forsaken this woman that he's 
put off and said, stay in mourning, has just shown that she's more righteous than he is. Judah's family is broken. Judah is broken. However, until this point, Judah never sees it. Judah's dad was a jerk. Abraham, his grandfather, was a jerk at some points. Judah is just continuing the line. Judah sold his brother into slavery. And now he sees just how far broken he is. Judah's heart is now being transformed. She, he says, she's more righteous than I, which is the first step if you and I ever want to experience transformation is to realize that you and I are broken people. We live in a broken world. Our stories have, all, have broken pieces all throughout them. Judah sees it, and this is the beginning of his transformation. He calls her more righteous than he was, which isn't saying much because Judah's not really that righteous to begin with. But he makes this move and he goes from the broken place and he moves through to a breakthrough. From brokenness to breakthrough. And later we see this unfold. Judah's brother, Joseph, being sold into slavery in Genesis 44, reveals himself in Egypt when the brothers came to get, to get the meal or to get food. We read this in the Lego Bible with my, 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 my son the other day. And he, and he says, uh, this, you know, our... our We need food, and Joseph gives this to him. This is the Brad version. And then he traps them by putting uh, a silver cup in the youngest brother's satchel, and then he goes, and then Joseph says, go get them back. And then they open up the, the, the case, and there's the silver cup, and they don't recognize Joseph. And Joseph says, he's gonna come back to me until you can make this right. And then Judah says something in Genesis 44. He says, let me trade spots with Benjamin. I'll take his place. And then he says, because I don't want my father to go through the disappointment of losing another son. Judah knew something about losing sons. He lost two of them. And he doesn't want his father in his father's old age to lose another one. And so there's something that happens with Judah between these, from Genesis 38 to Genesis 44, and we see him transformed. And now he's a new person where he's actually thinking about other people more than himself. Judah got through his brokenness. He broke through it. Tamar has the same trajectory. Her story has been defined by what other people have done to her. It wasn't her choices that put her in this place. She didn't do anything to her husbands. They were wicked, it says in Genesis 38, and that's why they died. She's been used and tossed away. Yet watch what happens in Genesis 38. When a time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. Now, to have a son in that day was a big deal. It meant that you were blessed. To have twin sons meant that you were doubly blessed. And so now she has two boys in her room. And as she was giving birth, and this just sounds painful without an epidural, one of them put his hand out and the midwife took it and wrapped a scarlet thread, tied it to his, to his wrist and said, this one came out first. But then he drew back his hand and the brother came out first. And she said, So this is how you've broken out. And he was given the name Peretz. Afterwards, his brother came out with the crimson thread on his hand, and his name was Zerah. She's doubly blessed. But did you catch the name that she gave him? Peretz. We say Perez, but in, in Hebrew, there's a, it's P-H-E-R-E-Z-T, Peretz. It means Breakthrough. This is how you've broken through. 
Tamar's story has been defined by roadblock after roadblock after roadblock after roadblock. Yet, Peretz comes, and the thing the midwife says, this is how you've broken out of this cycle of shame and victimhood. This is how you've gotten out of it. And you can't ignore the crimson tide, that, uh, the crimson cord that comes with this brother. I like to think it has Jesus all over it. That crimson cord that was tied to the brother's hand followed its way all the way down to the person of Christ and to the place of the cross where all of our stories of brokenness and victimhood and shame go to be put on the cross, to go be, to be put to death in order so that we can have new life. Tamar doesn't fit in this story, but she's perfect for it. She's there intentionally because she envelops all of our stories and the way that you and I can move on from our places of pain and hurt through the power of Christ and find wholeness because of it. She had a breakthrough, and it was her son Perez. She stayed in her father-in-law's house. Judah never slept with her again, and, and, and she was cared for. She was doubly blessed, so she was doubly cared for by her sons. And her inclusion in the story tells us this, that you and I, no matter what we've gone through, no matter what has happened to us, no matter what will happen to us, by our own fault, by someone else's fault, never keeps you out of the story of Christ. But why do people mis, mis, mistreat me all the time? That must mean I'm trash. This is our self-talk, right? Both my husbands are dead. What's wrong with me? Tamar says. This, and you might say something similar. What value do I have? It doesn't feel like I belong in the story of Christ. I mean, look at me. I don't belong there. I don't have a worth. What worth am I? My family is broken. Have you seen my parents? They're broken. I'm broken too. God doesn't take broken people. And so many of us carry these narratives around in our heads. And then we allow these broken narratives to define our lives and to limit us. But Tamar's story shows us that what happens to you doesn't define you. Your circumstances do not establish your worth or tell you where you belong because God sees past your circumstances and he wants to break through them. Each one of us has a Peretz moment to break through of everything that's happening to us, not in our tidied up places, but in our broken places, the messy places, the places we'd rather not talk about, the names on our own list, in our own families, in our own pasts that we wish would stay hidden. God's desire is to break through and to bring you to the place of Christ. God doesn't limit you. God doesn't hold you accountable for somebody else's mistakes. We do that all on our own. Tamar didn't know how or who her great, 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 whatever great grandson would be. But it all trickles down and her name's on this list over here and you can see it. All of those people came because of her, the discarded one, the thrown out one, the one no one wanted to touch, no one wanted to be with, led to Jesus. Our brokenness sends us to Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that even in our brokenness, you redeem it. This story has often been called the redemption of Judah, but it's the redemption of Tamar that's more important here.
Because in tomorrow, we find hope for our stories. We find breakthrough for our pasts. We find redemption for our mistakes. So Father, as we, end, as we start walking through this Advent season that ends with the manger and the hope of Christ with us, God with us, God, may we see that it's through our own brokenness where you are shown light and bright. That darkness doesn't define us. Our circumstances don't dictate our story. So God, may we lean into these broken places like Judah did, where he says, I'm broken. And he was changed. May we lean into these broken places like Tamar did and you blessed her because of it. And may we find you in these hidden places, in the messy places, and find your hope in those places. As the music begins, and if you want to take some time to pray through maybe some of the brokenness that you have uh, and the way you want God to break through for you, uh, there's communion over here to my right, your left. When you're ready, feel free to take them. There's the gluten-free packets with the prepackaged communion, and then there's bread and, and, and juice to dip your bread in and take. Before you go, maybe you search your hearts and say, God, what is this broken place in my life that I want you to redeem today? And my prayer is that he would meet you in that spot and you would begin the journey towards wholeness and the journey towards Christ.